And it's almost the old adage of like, you know, teach a man, give a man a fish and you can eat for a day and teach him how to fish and you can eat for a year. The rest of his life. So like in Nigeria, we've been eating for a day. Welcome to Collective Memory, where we explore the question of what it means to be Nigerian. In each episode, we'll attempt to answer this question by curating a range of perspectives on a single topic. Collective memories are the backbone of any society, helping individuals, communities, and nations to navigate their history and build their identity. Whether looking through the National Archives of Nigeria in Ibadan, or listening to family and friends tell stories of Nigeria, it's impossible to ignore the country's richness and complexity. With an estimated domestic population of over 200 million and a diaspora of more than 15 million, it's never been more important to capture the collective memories of Nigerians than it is now. Our guests for this episode include Tunji, a Nigerian finance and operations manager, Dr. Scott, an American professor of political science, Demi, a Nigerian investment banking analyst and former head of business development and strategy at a music label, and Amanda, a Nigerian historian, curator, and lawyer. This episode is centered around Nigeria's complicated political and economic landscape and the factors that have led the country to where it is now. There are a few topics that can get a Nigerian talking as passionately as Nigeria's politics and economy. There are a multitude of factors that help to explain why the country has failed to live up to its potential, ranging from short-term to long-term and internal to external. To kick off this episode, will explore the impact that decades of slavery and colonialism had on Nigeria's political and economic institutions and how these effects are still being felt today. Well, I think you, you, know, you, you have both external and internal factors, and I think both of them are significant, and I, I, don't, I don't think either one explains all of it. You know, externally, obviously, you have a horrible legacy from slavery and also from colonialism that uh, you know, killed large numbers of Nigerians, destroyed traditional cultures, traditional ways of lives, um, transformed Nigeria from subsistence farming uh, into cash crops for the European market. Um, more recently, oil being the, the, you know, the new cash crop or the most valuable cash crop. Um, you know, Commodity prices are extremely volatile. That makes budgeting very difficult, even for a government that's really trying to do the right thing or trying to manage its wealth well. Um, I, I always, uh, I, I, I like to use Chinua Achebe's novel, A Man of the People. And, um, and, and, you know, if you, if you reread A Man of the People, which was written in 1966, it seems more relevant today than when it was written 50 something years ago. And that, you know, that book, the opening segment of that book is there's a collapse in coffee prices. And some of the, some of the ministers that are Western educated want the president to do sensible things like cut spending and reduce subsidies and whatever. 
Uh, and the president fires all of them and is like, no, I need to save the coffee farmers because I need them to vote for me in the, you know, in the next election. Um, those kinds of dynamics are still, are still happening. And, and I think, you know, particularly the advent of the Chinese, their business model has largely been, we want oil, we want tin, we want rubber or whatever it is. What do you want in return? And if the African leader says, I want a, you know, presidential palace or a bulletproof limousine or private jets, the Chinese are providing that. Um, so, so they've been good to African leaders, but have they been good to African citizens? I think, no, I, I think much or, or much, much less so than you might've hoped for. That's the problem in Nigeria. We've got all these little industries, even palm oil industry and making people rich billionaires. And then you then have the Chinese who have seen this. The Chinese are in Kogi state. There's a particular kind of wood. No, but this is this one. Like I was in um, Kogi State, Kaba, and I just everybody. Like I was like, "What's going on?" There's just far too many. I've never seen as many Asians in one place. Like, what's going on? And apparently, they're there for the wood. So they're giving um, people like probably a couple of million naira. So they're building all their little bungalows. They're really happy with a million naira, and they're taking the, the wood. And selling it for uh, obviously far more than that. And sometimes some of these people foolishly buy it back in Dubai and other places, back to their houses in Nigeria. I'm like, you, we can't, they're taking advantage because we're allowing them to take advantage. People from outside are looking in, they can see all the industries. That's not, not that it has not been tapped, it's been tapped or abandoned. Every industry. Everything that, the, especially the Chinese are coming for, they've all been, they've, it, it made Nigeria what it was. Everything, they've just been abandoned. So you've got like two or three generations that have never seen these industries. But once upon a time, they were booming industries. But now the Chinese are there to take advantage of it. And of course, we've got willing politicians who are signing agreements off to them. After decades of military rule, many of Nigeria's institutions remain weaker than those of their Western counterparts. Take, for example, the multi-party political system. This system is often promoted as one of the signs of a healthy democracy, as it promotes centrism and encourages political parties to take positions that appeal to large sections of the electorate, leading to political stability and laying the foundation for economic growth. Although Nigeria has been under democratic rule since 1999, when the military handed over power to an elected civilian government led by Olusegun Obasanjo of the People's Democratic Party, Nigeria functioned as a one-party state for many years until 2015 when Muhammadu Buhari of the newly formed All Progressives Congress became president. Um, and then you've had you know, internally, uh, a history of military rule that I think has largely been ineffective and detrimental and human rights violating um, in your country, interspersed with very weak civilian regimes that have not been able to uh, move the needle in a positive direction. Corruption is obviously a huge problem that can't be uh, ignored or downplayed. 
Um, so, you know, I think, I think you've had bad leaders who've made bad decisions. I think being tied so heavily to oil dealt you a very bad hand that brings a lot of risks and dangers with it. Um, but as I said, I, I think you have both serious external factors, global political economy and historical factors, but you also have internal factors of corrupt leaders making stupid decisions and violating the human rights of their citizens. So, uh, you know, to me, all those things kind of intermesh together. You know, the effects of, of those decades of military people have, have had impacts on Nigeria and still have impacts to today. You know, if there was ever like a word and synonym thing, I think if you saw like Niger, then you'd see oil right next to it. It's, like, it, it's the biggest, you know, part of the economy, I think. Um, it, and I don't even think, I'm certain it is. Those years of the will also prevented the development of political ideologies. So, you know, we now have a, we now have political parties that are built on getting to political office. Um, as opposed to political parties built on ideologies centered around, you know, the people and how they know what they want to do in, in the economy. Um, so I think those, those effects are still being felt today. Oil was first discovered in Eloy Berry by Elsa State in 1956 by a joint operation between Royal Dutch Shell and British Petroleum. Before that, Nigeria had a predominantly agrarian economy. The discovery of crude oil in Nigeria turned out to be a mixed blessing. While it came with economic growth and infrastructural development, some of the projects were abandoned and the funds for those projects embezzled. It also led to the destruction of the aquatic environment, which affected fishing, the indigenous population's primary source of livelihood. According to the Nigerian government, there were more than 7,000 spills between 1970 and 2000. Shell ultimately admitted liability for two massive oil spills in Nigeria and faced a host of multi-million pound fines decades later. You know, if there was ever like a word and synonym thing, I think if you saw like Nigeria, then you'd see oil right next to it. It's, like, it, it's the biggest you know, part of the economy, I think. Um, and I don't even think, I'm certain it is. I'd say resource counseling is obviously like a huge part of me. It's, it's the biggest gift in and comes to Nigeria and like, it's, it's always been mind blowing to me that Nigeria is like one of the top crude oil producers, but we import more petrol than we, um, export. Like we don't have the refineries. And again, that's back to the maintenance question, the maintenance culture question. We have industries that were abandoned because of oil. Those industries have gone nowhere because they're from the ground. We have, um, I mean, even, what do you call it? The Panama hat were made in Bida. Not Panama. They were actually made in Bida. And they called them Panama hats. And then, of course, they now started industry somewhere else. Okay. We had um, Sapele Woods. We have all kinds of things, cocoa, cotton. You know, there's been so many adverts talking about the cotton of Nigeria, of West Africa. Um, the Gold Coast and Nigeria sustaining Europe, right? The problem we have today is that because of oil and because we had people who were trained to defend, not trained to lead, Nigeria just missed its trap. 
So we now focused on oil, did not develop our other industries, which were being maintained by the region. And those industries kind of fell apart, but they're still there. They're really still there. In the North, a lot of private like families are still, you know, maintaining their little industries, their little businesses. I hear that um, the luxury industry, Louis Vuitton, gets their material, their, their lever from the North till today. But you see the problem with the North, and then of course the diamond, the diamond industry, um, the gold industry in the North is ridiculous. The problem is the North doesn't, I don't know how much they remit. I don't know how much the, 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 they get in tax. I don't even know if it's actually being acknowledged. There are currently schemes in place to yeah. diversify the economy, talking about agriculture um, and all those things. But also, I just think that it's not, I think it's just, you know, a consideration point for the government at this mm-hmm. point in time. I think the, the right amount of work isn't being put into actually strengthening, you know, and I think that, so for the foreseeable future, you know, that being 10, 20, 30 years, um, you know, well, will still be a huge part of, of our economy. A weakened political system and economy can have many negative effects on a country, some tangible and others intangible. The dissolution and demoralization felt by many has chipped away at national pride and unity with people looking to lay blame. The word Japa, slang for runaway, has also become ubiquitous in every Nigerian's dictionary, and the trend has been accelerated by citizens seeking to escape Nigeria and build a better life elsewhere. This has contributed to the brain drain that is exacerbating the country's social and economic problems, such as lack of healthcare workers. In, inherently, there's um, the challenge, the lack, the problems that need to be fixed, fixing them doesn't necessarily benefit the people who are in a position to fix them. And I think that's what's led to you know, the huge amount of the issues you can see today in Nigeria. The, uh, there's, there's been serious mismanagement of the currency and there's just been every president that has come in and every cabinet that comes in has this short-term agenda, which is focused on um, you know, the next election or how do we look good by the next election? And I just don't think fiscal policy can be based on that because you're always going to run into the issues of trying to go down that route. Take, take, for example, the, the, you know, the exchange rate, the dollar to the buyer. Um, we all know that, you know, a dollar is in 380 or whatever and the central bank is claiming it. It's, mm. it's not, you know, and this insists, I mean, it, it's, it's, it, I understand why the central bank is insisting on a fixed exchange rate, um, you know, because if it's allowed to fluctuate, then all sorts of things begin to happen. So it, it's understandable to, to some degree, you know, but then when you run a fixed exchange rate system, you know, then the central bank is basically responsible for supply. But then you have a situation where the central bank is also trying to control demand. So creating a list of things that, oh, you're not allowed to request a dollar to buy this or pay for that or whatever. Mm-hmm. And on that front, it's just, there are hard truths that the country needs to face or the country's managers need to face that they're refusing to face and solutions that in the short term, you know, will hurt people, but in the long term produce results. Um, and raised about, you know, of course, the rich, you know, 
predominantly having all their money in dollars versus you know um, poor people having all their money in in naira. I think it it has a subtle impact on how we market ourselves as a country and as people to investors. You know, so I think for um, for a foreign investor looking at the country or you know working with a fairly successful Nigerian business partner who says, "Oh, I want you to pay me in dollars," I think. You know, or or only accept you know pay, yeah only accept payments in dollars or whatever. Um, I think it definitely sends off the signal that there is something fundamentally wrong with the economy and wrong with the country. It, it's, it's also one of the reasons why you know we're currently exper- experiencing a downturn beyond other global factors or prices. The virus, some of these, we're also experiencing you know the current downturn in the economy because the truth is, you know, um, investors based on what they can read in the FT and, you know, the Wall Street Journal and other places, but also in how we, you know, talk about the economy evidenced by the currencies that, you know, the wealthy people deal in the most, you know, we aren't giving off the wrong signals or we're not giving off the right signals to potential investors. Um, so I think on that point, on that front, there is definitely, uh, you know, I think it's the one point or one place where our national pride, because I think Nigerians are very proud people, our national pride falls apart. Many Nigerians find themselves in a position where they need to make ends meet no matter the political or economic state of the country. Whether that means living on the mainland and enduring hours of traffic to get to work on the island for Lagos residents, or leaving the country entirely for greener pastures, Nigerians have shown that they are able to persevere and be self-sufficient. For better or worse, suffering and smiling seems to be a hallmark of what it means to be Nigerian. Thank you to our wonderful guests and thank you for listening. If you'd like to add your perspective to the collective memory, email us at collectivememorypodcast at gmail.com. Share, follow, subscribe, and let us know your thoughts on this episode. We'll catch you next time on Collective Memory. Collective Memory.